back, my friend, and welcome to episode 220 of this Bible study podcast series, reading through the Gospel of Luke. If you've made it this far and you've been consistently listening to these podcast episodes, 20 of them now, I am so grateful that you've been along for this journey, and I hope that it's been fruitful for you. I'm glad you're here with me today as we have another major transition point in our story. We've got Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 62. Let's jump right in and let's pray. Come Holy Spirit, open up our hearts and minds to the truth of your word. On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. There was a man in the crowd who cried out, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son. He is my only child. For a spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams, and it convulses him until he foams at the mouth. It releases him only with difficulty, wearing him out. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus said in reply, O faithless and perverse generation, how long will I be with you and endure you? Bring your son here. As he was coming forward, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and returned him to his father. And all were astonished by the majesty of God. While they were all amazed at his every deed, he said to his disciples, Pay attention to what I am telling you. The Son of Man is to be handed over to men. But they did not understand this saying. Its meaning was hidden from them, so that they should not understand it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among the disciples about which of them was the greatest. Jesus realized the intention of their hearts and took a child and placed it by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you is the one who is greatest. Then John said in reply, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow in our company. Jesus said to him, Do not prevent him, for whoever is not against you is for you. When the days for his being taken up were fulfilled, he resolutely determined to journey to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. On the way, he entered a Samaritan village to prepare for his reception there, but they would not welcome him because the destination of his journey was Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? Jesus turned, rebuked them, and they journeyed to another village. As they were proceeding on their journey, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus answered him, Foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. And to another he said, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. But he answered him, Let the dead bury their dead. But you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to my family at home. To him Jesus said, No one who sets a hand to the plow and looks to what was left behind is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Okay, so we begin, we, we just read yesterday, the transfiguration. So they're up on the mountain, uh, Jesus and the big three, Peter, James, and John, and they come down from the mountain. And our story today begins at the bottom of the mountain where there's a large crowd waiting. There's a man with a demon-possessed child, and it sa- he says that it's his only child. And I, I haven't noticed noted this previously, but in two of our other kind of healing occasion stories that we've had back with like the the widow's the widow's son and Jairus's daughter both of whom Jesus can resurrected both of them the widow and Jairus both said this is my only child similar to this man that we just read about today which I think is an an interesting detail I don't know if there's anything particularly significant that jumps out right away but it's a detail that's mentioned in all three of the stories, the person says, this is my only child. Maybe a connection we can make is how we understand that Jesus is God's only begotten son. Uh, and maybe the heart of God the Father is manifested in his son Jesus in each of these healings. A heart that takes pity for uh, a parent's only child. But the man says, I begged your disciples to cast out the demon, but they could not. And there's really no explanation for this in Luke's gospel. Uh, in this version of the story in Mark and Matthew's gospel, and Mark's, Jesus says to the disciples, this kind can only come out through prayer. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says to his disciples, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could do it. Um, so although it doesn't, it doesn't say, <laughs> Jesus doesn't really say anything to the disciples here, maybe what we're finding is that the reason the disciples couldn't cast it out is some lack of real faith, like real faith enough that they could do it or that they lacked prayer. And they maybe tried to do it by their own power or something of the sort. But the the thing that Jesus does respond with is a very interesting response from Jesus. He says, Oh, faithless and perverse generation, How long will I be with you and endure you? What a rebuke from Jesus. Probably the most most fiery response that Jesus has given to the people yet so far. Uh, And what exactly this means, hard to say, but maybe we find some clues in uh, where we've heard a similar phrase before. And that would be in the Old Testament from a, this, what is the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 4 and 5. Moses says, A faithful God without deceit, just and upright is he, yet his degenerate children have dealt falsely with him, a perverse and crooked generation. Very similar to what Jesus says here. Um, and if Moses said that about the Israelites in the Old Testament, what what connections can we make here? Now, it's not... It's not directly after that Moses says this, but kind of the the, degener- the degeneration of the Israelites that Moses may be referring to is, uh, the most clear example that we would have is the time when Moses receives the Ten Commandments up on the mountain, and then he comes down the mountain to find the Israelite people worshiping a golden calf, if you remember that story from the Old Testament. And here, in kind of a similar similar way, but probably to a much less explicit extent. Jesus has just been up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he too comes down the mountain, and he finds his disciples uh, unable to cast out this demon. 
for whatever reason, but likely for a lack of prayer and a lack of real faith. So I guess in, in both situations, it's a lack of faith presented by uh, by the people. And maybe that's why Jesus says, says these words. Maybe it's directed to probably not only the people, but um, also his disciples in some way. Uh, that that they had some lack of faith to be able to do this this exorcism or this casting out of the demon. But Jesus nonetheless takes care of it himself, heals the boy, returns the boy to his father, but then kind of gives a plot twist. Just right there in the moment, we have the second prediction of the passion, where Jesus turns to his disciples and says, the son of man is to be handed over to men. Um, in different translations, it it would read, the Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands. Now, again, this is a second kind of foreshadowing or prediction of what's going to happen to Jesus later on in our story. There's no explicit mention of death in this one. As we kind of read yesterday, Jesus explicitly said that he would be killed. Um, but in some ways, Jesus is adding on to that first one that we read yesterday, giving them essentially the means for how he's going to experience this suffering and death, which is betrayal into human hands. And we'll we'll see how that plays out in our story. But it says, they did not understand this saying, uh, and they were afraid to ask him. Why? Why does no one ask him a question? My, my sense would be, so far, really the one we've seen asking questions or responding to Jesus has been Peter in our story. And Peter was just up on the mountain and witnessed the transfiguration. And as we read yesterday, probably said the wrong thing and gave when he tried to give his two cents. So I think Peter is keeping his mouth shut for, for the moment. So no one asks any questions at this point. Um, and they're probably all confused a little bit still, as we mentioned yesterday, about these kind of predictions that Jesus has begun to give. But as they leave, they leave the scene, it says an argument breaks out about which one of them is the greatest. Why this argument breaks out? Well, probably because if we just yesterday had Jesus confirm to them that he is the Messiah, then probably all the 12 are now thinking, well, who's going to be his right-hand man? Who's going to be like the top guy, right, at the hand of the king in his kingdom? That the disciples at this point are probably really still thinking that Jesus is going to establish an earthly kingdom as the Messiah. So they begin to argue about who's going to sit at the right hand of the king, who is the greatest in the kingdom next to the Messiah. Uh, But it says Jesus realized the intention of their hearts. So again, we find Jesus kind of in mind reader mode. Uh, But he says, he, he pulls up a child he just grabs grabs a kid from next to him and says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. There's, there's a similar theme here that we'll find again that comes up um, in later in Luke's gospel and many of the other gospels that Jesus creates this bridge in a sense that if we receive another, then we receive Jesus. And if we receive Jesus, then we receive God. God himself, the one who sent Jesus. So in some way, Jesus is the bridge between us and God, which is incredible in, in the word made flesh and God's only son coming to be with us. Um, but he, he also says here that the least is the greatest, which is, again, consistent with another one of our themes of God being the reverser, or God giving a reversal of fortunes. 
Now that the that not the greatest, the the loftiest is the greatest, but the least is the greatest in Jesus's kind of upside down kingdom as the Messiah, as the King of His kingdom. Then we see, um, and I okay, so I. I'll take a step back here because I think yesterday I mentioned something like Peter's really the only one who talks in Luke's gospel. Today I am proven, I'm proven wrong and I totally overlooked this. But John speaks. We hear one of the other apostles give some words and John says, hey, we, we saw this other exorcist who's trying to cast out demons, but we try to stop him because he's like, he's not one of us. He's not a part of the crew. So we find John, I guess, one, he's at least loyal to the cause. So pros of this is John is loyal to the cause, but maybe a little bit competitive. Uh, we we find otherwise that in other gospels that John and his brother James are called the sons of thunder. <laughs> and maybe there's a little, uh, little competition in, in our friend John. But Jesus then says, whoever is not against you is for you. Kind of saying to John, like, pick your battles. And you don't need to be needlessly exclusive in this sense. If he's not necessarily doing anything wrong that's against us, then pick your battles. Pick your battles, John. But what we see in these few verses here is important stuff for us too. Something for us to take away is that Jesus speaks very explicitly against rivalry and against exclusivity. Talking about the argument about who's the greatest, Jesus says, Rivalry is not Christian. Competition in this sense is not Christian. And John says, like, we tried to stop this guy who's not a part of us. Jesus it goes says that exclusivity is not Christian. Um, that what kind of at the heart of these two things is uh, envy in rivalry and competition and pride in exclusivity. That Jesus is speaking to his disciples very much against envy and pride against rivalry and exclusivity. And this is probably a a moment of uh, personal reflection for me too, of like where in my, I mean, especially as someone who like does ministry, but just as as someone who exists in the world as a, as a attempted follower of Christ in my intentions, uh, do I have bits of rivalry in my heart, exclusivity in my heart, and where are those roots of envy and pride that I need to root out of my life as well? But then we arrive at a critical juncture in our story. It, one of the most one of the most uh, important transition points in our story, where it says that Jesus resolutely determined to journey to Jerusalem. So everything we've had so far, we had like the the nativity story. And then Jesus' public ministry in Galilee. He's been in the region of Galilee for the most part. And now, for the rest of our story, for the next 10 chapters or so, will be the journey towards Jerusalem, where Jesus and his and his disciples are traveling to Jerusalem for, and if we remember just yesterday, we talked about Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah about the exodus he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. So Jesus has now begun the journey towards what will eventually be accomplished there. And a lot of this, for most of what we'll continue to read for the next 10 chapters or so, is a big section of Jesus's teaching. So we had a lot of like uh, miracles and signs and wonders in Galilee, and now there's going to be a lot of teaching moments on this journey to Jerusalem that we continue to read. But the journey begins in Samaria, uh, where Jesus enters a Samaritan village, and it says he's not welcomed. So Samaria is kind of the the region between Galilee, which is in the north, and Jerusalem, which is south. Between there is Samaria. Uh, and to 
speak about it concisely that the Samaritans and the Israelites, because I don't think we've, yeah, I don't, I don't think we've approached the Samaritans in our stories so far. Um, but the Samaritans and the Israelites have beef. Samaritans are kind of like half Israelites, um, but they were like, we don't, we don't need to get into all of that. But Samaritans and Israelites have beef at this point. Um, so they're not, not great fans. They don't get along super well with the Israelite people. And they see Jesus as a Jew headed towards Jerusalem. So he's rejected there. And I think it's interesting to find that this section, Jesus's journey towards Jerusalem, begins with a rejection the same way that our last section began, where Jesus was rejected in Nazareth. So it begins with rejection, and we'll probably see over the course of the time how Jesus is welcomed in his teaching and his journey towards Jerusalem, the way he was in Galilee. Uh, But right after that, we see not only John speaking, but James and John speaking in their response that Jesus is not welcomed in Samaria. And James and John give the wild suggestion. They say, should we call down fire from heaven? to consume them. Uh, again, James and John called the sons of thunder. We see example A1 of, of why they might be called that. Uh, but there is some like some biblical basis for this suggestion, actually, as wild as it sounds. So back in the second book of Kings chapter 1, um, essentially what happens is the king of Samaria seeks advice from a pagan god about an injury that he has. And Elijah says to him that because he went to the pagan god instead of the god of Israel, the king will die. So the king, naturally, because he's angry, sends a large crowd after Elijah. And Elijah, in response, brings down fire from heaven to consume them, to consume the crowd. Um, So this is, there is some kind of like biblical background. But Jesus, in response to this wild suggestion from the sons of thunder he rejects and rebukes them one because jesus is not elijah as we said if there was any connection at all there jesus affirms i am not elijah and jesus is also not about vengeance that if he was so so clearly rejected a few a few chapters ago by the jerusalems after he cured cured the demoniac and he didn't bring down fire upon them in that moment he's not going to do it to the samaritans now. Uh, So they continue. They just continue on their journey, uh, whatever. (laughs) But on the way, uh, we encounter a few would-be followers of Jesus. So three examples of people who had the opportunity but gave excuses. So the first, the first says to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus responds, foxes have dens, birds of the sky have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to rest his head. Jesus says discipleship on mission is radical, that we have no home, we have no place to rest our heads, that it's radical mission that we're a part of. And if you're not up for that, then you, you can't be a part of a part of this crew. Uh, the next one, Jesus says to him, follow me. And he says, well, let me go first and bury my father. And in one sense, this is a legit this is a legit reason that there is there is like a Jewish traditional filial obligation to bury your dead family members. Um, but if we kind of read between the lines here a little bit, why would the man be here? Why would the man be like in the presence of Jesus, following Jesus in this crowd, if his father had just died? Like really, if if his if his father had just died, don't you think he would be at home with his family, like grieving? But he's not. 
So essentially what this implies is the guy's father isn't even dead. He's just anticipating, well, let me just wait around a little while because eventually I'm going to have to bury my father when he dies. This future expectation, this like, this biding my time indecisiveness because like eventually I'm going to have to do something. Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom. There's urgency of discipleship that we have to go now. We have to preach the gospel now. And that the spiritual life, the spiritual significance overrides filial obligation because there's great urgency in the gospel. The third one, uh, Jesus says, follow. And he says, well, let me go say farewell to my family. Let me just say bye to my family first. I'll come, but let me say goodbye. Interestingly, we find a similar example in the Old Testament as well. The prophet Elisha, when he follows, when he's called to follow Elijah, um, Elisha says the same thing in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 20. And in the Old Testament, Elijah allows him to. Elisha says, let me go say farewell to my family and tie up some loose ends there. And Elijah says, okay, fine, go do it and then you can follow me. Jesus, though, <laughs> says no. Jesus says, no one who sets a hand to the plow and looks to what was left behind is fit for the kingdom of God. Why? Because there is more urgency in the New Testament. What was okay for Elisha in the Old Testament is not okay for disciples now because the gospel of Jesus Christ is urgent. No regrets, no what ifs, no looking back, no waiting around. It's time, it's time to go. It's time to proclaim the gospel. To be followers of Jesus Christ is radical. But the question for you and me as we read this is, what if I so boldly follow Jesus? That's the question I'm asking myself today as I, as I read through this. What if I so boldly follow Jesus, stop looking back at what I'd, what I'd be leaving behind or, or biding my time in indecision with, with regrets or what ifs or contemplating all the options? What if I just stepped out and ran with Jesus and followed him boldly and radically on mission as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And we know that this gospel tells us, if, I, I mean, this is much easier said than done, but in the what if, and if I follow Jesus so boldly, it's life in abundance. <laughs> it's life to the full. So may I reflect on that? May you reflect on that today, how we can more boldly follow Jesus Christ and be radically on mission with him as disciples of our Savior. So thankful that you're here with me again today. Can't wait to do it again tomorrow. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen.